Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. A young man who turns his desire to join the army into a long stint as a volunteer ambulance driver. A teacher living in an old slum who was the only one brave, or foolish enough, to stand up to the gangs. A refugee who becomes a community organizer. A woman in a traditional village looking at the new development quickly encroaching on their land. A bored engineer who finds his calling as a crime reporter. These people are the subjects of Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City, the debut by Samira Shackle, published by Granta earlier this year. Samira travels to Karachi, the home city of her mother, and tells the story of ordinary people trying to live their lives in the midst of terrible violence, first by the gangs, then by the Taliban. Samira Shackle is a freelance British-Pakistani writer and reporter based in London. She is the editor of the New Humanist magazine and a regular contributor to the Guardian Long Read. Today, I'll ask Samira to talk about the city of Karachi and the five people she writes about in her book. We'll talk about the turning points in the violence there and what it was like to write about her mother's home city. So, Samira, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Perhaps my first question should be about the city of Karachi itself. Uh, What's it like for someone who may never have visited? And what place does the city hold in Pakistani history, its politics, and its economy? Uh, hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so yeah, the, the the experience of being in Karachi, I think, would be um, on some levels fairly familiar to anyone who's been to um, one of these big, uh, fast developing megacities uh, of the global south. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it's hectic lanes of traffic, which aren't particularly well organized. There's people everywhere. There's street hawkers. There's a real kind of um, chaos uh and energy uh, in, in in the city and the the city also sprawls out so it's almost like um multiple cities that are all sort of next to each other there's so many different areas that you can kind of um uh stay within one particular area and, and feel like you've been in the whole city but actually you've seen just just a, a tiny fraction of it um, and i think that's comparable to other cities in south asia certainly um mumbai perhaps or delhi in some senses um even to uh, cities further afield. Um, I, I remember um, visiting Lagos in Nigeria a few years back um, and thinking how many similarities I could see there, although there's obviously differences too. So, you know, that it's that sense of a place that's kind of um, expanded faster uh, than the infrastructure has um, and, and has really kind of sprawled to accommodate a growing population. Um, and I think uh, in answer to the second part of your question, that, that fast expansion... Uh, is sort of indicative of the place that Karachi has in in Pakistani um, sort of economics and society and history. Uh, so when the country was formed in 1947 out of the partition of India, Karachi was the capital. Uh, and it's no longer the capital. That's moved to Islamabad, which is much more in the middle of the country. So Karachi's uh, a port in the south. Um, but it, it's sort of kept that sense of importance. It's the economic heart of the country. So it's the place where people migrate to in search of their fortune. So that's people from all over the country have gone there in various uh, various waves over the last seven decades, um, 
from from the northwest of the country when they've been displaced by violence or by natural disaster. There's a lot of people from Afghanistan. Uh, of course, crucially, um, at the time of partition, many of the the people who left their homes in in India to make their home in this new uh, Muslim homeland wound up in Karachi. So it's it's very much a kind of migrant city and a place uh, that that for all its difficulties and the prevalence of of crime and so on which i'm sure we'll go on to talk about is still seen as this place where you can you can make your fortune and it accounts for a huge um huge chunk of pakistan's gdp as well so what's the time period you're covering in karachi vice um what's going to happening in pakistan nationally during the time you're during the time covered in the book so the book particularly focuses in on um, the, the sort of last 10 to 15 years, uh, although it obviously takes in some of the history before that. But um, it really sort of looks in particular at a period from, from around 2008 up until um, you know, 2018, 2019, when I finished writing it. Um, and that uh, during that period, Karachi was undergoing... Um, a, a huge wave of violence um, and it's seen these waves of violence over the years and it's sort of erupted at different points. Um, something that's always kind of simmering below the below the surface but came to a crescendo um, around then as it had uh, previously in the 90s. Uh, and the, the reason for that is um, there's these many different things going on in the city. So as I mentioned, uh, people have migrated from all over Pakistan and and also uh, to some extent from the wider region to Karachi. And there's a sense of different ethnic groups um, sort of pushing against each other for resources and land and space and political power and control over resources. Um, and given that, the, as I said, the population's expanded faster than the infrastructure, there are many sort of gaping holes that have been left by the state and um, criminal interests, many of which are tied to political parties, which in turn are tied to ethnic groups, have sort of stepped in to, to fill those gaps. And you see that um, sort of playing out in many different ways. So in the period um, that the book focuses on, there was uh, multiple different things going on. You had um, this gang violence was really coming to a crescendo. You had the entrance of terror groups, uh, which I think is probably, in, you know, if you think about the international media, what people often think of, sadly, when they think of Pakistan is terrorism. But that really became a huge problem in the aftermath of 2001 and the US invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but you had this sort of entering in Karachi and already quite febrile, violent atmosphere, you had the sort of entrance of, of extremist groups on top of that as sort of one more element, as it were. So you had all these things going on. Um, and then from around 2014, 2015, uh, a bloody police and army-led crackdown, uh, which is also chronicled in the book. Um, and again, that that echoes something which had happened in the 90s when the army went in to re restore order in the streets of Karachi cracking down on political parties and extremist groups and criminal gangs and so on. So the book really sort of traces this latest uh, outbreak of, of very intense violence from kind of reaching a crescendo with the violence to this um, army-led crackdown uh, and sort of follows all of those things through the effect on uh, the lives of five people who live in, in Karachi and, and how, their, uh, how their daily lives came into in how their daily lives sort of were affected by all these things that were going on and how they've sort of tried in their own ways to make things better. Um, so I think we'll get into some of the 
some of the you know the other organizations like like the gangs later on in this interview. Um, but I'd like to ask you to talk about some of the people you write about in your book. Um, I guess you could could you take some time to kind of explain and describe some of the some of the main characters uh, that that you discuss in Karachi Vice. Sure. So there are five people who the book focuses on. Um, the first is Safter, who's an ambulance driver. Um, and so the, I mentioned the gaps left by the state. One of the most glaring ones, I think, is uh, that, that, that there's no state ambulance service in Karachi. And this is a, a city of over 20 million people. Uh, and, and there's an organization called the Edi Foundation, which is a huge charity, uh, which was set up in a very sort of grassroots way and has, has expanded hugely, uh, which provides a fleet of ambulances for the city. And um, there's subsequently been some other charities which, which do the same work, but this is the the biggest and the most long running. And Safter works with them. Um, and when you think of an ambulance driver, you might have a particular image of, of sort of paramedics and so on. But this is really kind of frontline rescue work because of, uh, you know, it's a context where particularly at, at times in this um, 10, 15 year period that I'm writing about, there were sometimes multiple terror attacks in a day and there were live running gun battles in areas of the city and the ambulance drivers really act as the the first responders they're going in they're they're picking up bodies they're providing um emergency first aid and transporting people to hospital in the aftermath of terror attacks so it's really quite extreme work and it's done for very little money and at huge huge personal risk so he was one of the people um he's also a really sort of for, for all he's been through really hilarious guy who was a pleasure to spend time with um and another is parveen uh, we mentioned the gang war earlier she lives in an area called liari which i'm sure we'll talk about later uh, which has been the center of the gang wars in karachi and uh, for much of the period that the book focuses on was essentially run as a sort of mini fiefdom by um by a criminal gang that was allied to the party of government at the time and she's a very moral person. She started out as a teacher. She now does various kind of local development type projects. Um, and she, unlike many people in her area, really refused to compromise with the gangs. So you had many people who did her kind of social work, sort of deciding, uh, you know, sort of real politic. Let's just work with these guys since they're in charge. Let's get the money and let's get the community work done. And she really sort of held on to her moral core in a way that I think can be very difficult in those sort of um, living in, in that sort of a context. There's also Zile, who's a, a crime reporter um, working for one of the country's biggest, um, biggest news organisations, uh, again, putting himself at huge personal risk to sort of run around reporting on all these things that are going on and forging links with gangsters and putting himself actually quite literally in the firing line at terror attacks. He was shot at one point um, and becoming kind of addicted to the to the thrill of it, really, um, and, and quite unable to step back um, from from this work. Uh, there's also Siraj, who's a, a map maker who lives in an area called Orangi Town, which is often described as uh, one of the world's biggest slums, although people who live there don't really like that description, obviously. Uh, and he does sort of very interesting um, community architecture work. So it's sort of um, helping to make maps of areas that haven't been mapped because they have been, um, they, they've sort of sprung up organically and without much, well, without any intervention from the state. So people just sort of build where they can. They then have to really fight to get access to basic services like gas and electricity. They're sort of siphoning things off. They're coming up with their own solutions. So 
the idea is that once you have these maps, you can go to the municipal authorities and you can say, we're here, we have rights over this land and we need some services. And it sounds like a kind of mundane uh, thing to do, but but I think it's indicative of, of how crime and dangerous political interests um, sort of impinge on all these different areas of life in Karachi, that this is actually quite high stakes work uh, because there's uh, so-called land mafias and water mafias um, controlling things like the the sale of land and the flow of water, quite literally. And that led to Siraj's mentor, Parveen Rahman, who was a, a pioneering social activist being murdered in 2013 for her mapping work. Uh, and the final person is Jannat, who is a woman who lives on the outskirts of the city. And it's a, a sort of urban, rural settlement. And when I went there for the first time, I was kind of amazed that it was technically still part of Karachi. It sort of felt like stepping back in time to, you know, they'd only had electricity for the last eight years or so. They didn't have running water. Uh, there were no schools, no hospitals in within any sort of easy distance. Uh, and this area where villagers have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years is under threat of displacement from um, from a big property developer who's building essentially a, a, a new city on the outskirts of Karachi uh, called Barrier Town, which is um, a massive, massive development planned to be the size of Washington, D.C., uh, mostly sort of high-end apartments, and which is sort of being built over villages and people are being displaced on a mass scale. So, so yeah, those are, those are the people, uh, sort of hopefully quick enough summary of them. Well, one question I had is that many of the people you profile in the book have made the choice to serve their communities, whether in ways, you know, small as in working in the, in the community school or large, um, in your kind of, in kind of studying them, writing about them, uh, what do you think drove some of these people to make that choice? Um, it's a good question because, as I said, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's it's doing something that's really putting yourself at a huge amount of risk for not a huge amount of gain, um, or not not a huge amount of personal gain. Anyway, you know, there's certainly not a huge financial reward uh, for doing this work. I think for any of those people. Um, I think that it. I think there's a real sense of civic mindedness, uh, which is not unique to the people I wrote about in the book. Although I think they're all uh, extraordinary in in some way, but they're also very ordinary in other ways. Um, and there is a, 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 despite the problems that have beset Karachi, I think there's a huge pride in the city that lots of people feel. Uh, there's a community mindedness that people want to do something to make the community better and to help other people um you know charity is is really embedded into pakistani culture and the you know someone's always giving something to someone less well off than themselves even if that person isn't at all well off as it were um you know something like the ed foundation which runs the ambulances that i mentioned is powered entirely on donations and during the time i spent at the foundation you see a steady stream of people from all walks of life including people who really are not affluent, uh, sort of coming in through the day to just drop off donations because people think it's important to do something for others. So I think that's the the kind of backdrop, and that is a real um, that's not not just a citywide but a cult- countrywide ethos. Um, and yeah, I think with the the people I wrote about, for all of them, it it, it hadn't really crossed their mind to do anything different. Um, if that makes sense, I think. They were compelled to do the work that they were doing um, out of a real sense of, of wanting to change something for the better in, in whatever way they could. 
Um, and I think there's a kind of um, almost a compulsion in that. I guess it becomes like a sense of mission and, and you want to, you know, even seeing things getting worse and worse, just wanting to make your small bit of difference and, and try and, um, you know, Siraj, the map maker, talked to me a lot about the power of incremental change and he might not be able to change the the much bigger things, but if he can make a, a difference to one family or one area, uh, one village and get their map done or whatever it is, then he sort of feels that that's his contribution and that that's worthwhile. So I'd like to get into the risk you talk about at the beginning of, of your previous answer. Um, a lot of the risk, it seems, especially in the first half of the book, um, comes from the violence presented by gangs, especially in areas like Liari. Um, you've already talked a bit about how uh, the gangs are filling holes left behind by the state. Um, but I wonder if you might kind of flesh out that explanation a bit more um, and explain kind of what these gangs are, how they're organized, and what they're actually doing in, in Karachi society. Sure. So... Um... The Liari, is, as we mentioned, is um, <clears throat> uh, an area that's been uh, a real sort of centre for organised crime for decades, and that's partly because of its location. Uh, it is situated quite close to the port, and it's been the centre of the, the drugs trade in Pakistan for a long time. You have shipments of heroin coming in from Afghanistan. Um, and, and you've also had gangs sort of controlling the area. So this is an area that's that's quite poor, that's been neglected by the state historically. Um, and the gangs um, and sort of various gang leaders over the years have sort of acted like local representatives almost. I mean, they really do run the area. Um, uh, and so on one level, that's all the things you might expect. Like there's extortion of local businesses. There might be intimidation of opponents and sometimes... Uh, quite high levels of violence against rival gangs and so on, or anyone sort of vying to get in on that um, on their patch. Uh, but you also have a whole host of other things. Um, you know that a lot of the gangs, gangsters in Liari, are sort of self-styled Robin Hood figures who like to talk about how much they're giving back to the community. Um, they might do sort of clean-up initiatives of, of litter on the streets, or they might uh, they might run social work things or sort of control the funding to, to social work, local social work projects at least, um, bestow favours or help out local people who are struggling. So all of these kinds of things which you wouldn't really expect a criminal gang to be doing, they are doing. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a very high level of criminality and violence running alongside that. Um, and then the other thing that I think makes um, gangs in Karachi very different to, to lots of other places is how intimately they're tied to politics at the very highest level. So in the period that the book focuses on uh, from about 2008, when the Pakistan People's Party uh, were elected to national government in Pakistan, um, they formed an alliance with the main gang at the time in Liari. Uh, so that gang sort of acted as their street enforcers to fight against um, the street gangs of other political parties. And the reason that was necessary is because you have a very sort of similar model to what I've described in, in Liari being operated by political parties. Um, and, they, you know, the political parties might deny that they do this, but everyone sort of knows that they do and that there's a lot of evidence that they do. So... The MQM, which is a, a party that was set up to represent Mahajirs, who are the, the people who travelled from India at the time of partition to set up home in Pakistan. Um, that's long been the dominant party in, in Karachi's local politics. Um, and they have 
street wings which operate in a very similar way to the to the Liari gang. So they they have a lot of extortion and intimidation. Um, the, the army operation I mentioned in the 1990s was really focused on clamping down on the MQM, which was running huge swathes of the city like their own private fiefdoms. Um, and that army operation uncovered uh, torture cells and bone drills and uh, all sorts of gruesome things. The hallmark of the party was leaving people at the side of the road in body bags. Um, and that sort of carried on despite that 1990s army operation. Uh, so the area where Siraj, the map maker, lives uh, is controlled by the MQM or was uh, at the time uh, that the book focuses on. Uh, and, and, you know, they're really sort of patrolling the streets and telling people who to vote for and when uh, in much the same way uh, that Parveen, the teacher based in Liari, experienced with the with the gangsters in Liari. You know, they're they're operating in a very similar way. And other political parties uh, are doing the same thing. So the ANP, which represents the Pashtuns, who's the ethnic group from from the north of the country, on a slightly smaller scale, but operate in a very similar way. So a mix of this sort of um, territorial control over specific areas, along with all the hallmarks of of organised crime, so extortion and uh, trading in sort of might be land or drugs or whatever it is. uh, and then the, when the Taliban and other extremist groups entered Karachi in earnest and started setting up base there, again, from around 2008 onwards, uh, they operated a very similar model. And a lot of the reason why they set up in Karachi was because they saw it as a money-making opportunity, because they could extort money from businesses, they could get sort of territorial foothold, they could um, uh, they could do kidnappings for ransom because the city was quite lawless and law enforcement was quite uh, ineffective. So they also were sort of operating in a similar way and then the gangs are all fighting against each other um and in answer to your question about the gaps left by the state so on one level that's quite obvious i guess when you have these criminal interests stepping in and taking control of um you you know sort of running of areas as it were but you also have uh, a real control of resources uh, by criminal interests and this is all a bit more shadowy it's not entirely clear it's not like uh you can very easily say, well, it's this group controlling this thing and this group controlling this thing. But what you do have is uh, water becoming, for instance, a very valuable criminal commodity. Um, and that means that you have criminal gangs uh, operating water hydrants and, and sort of siphoning off water that should be going to people for free and then selling it on in tankers at vastly inflated rates. So you have people in huge swathes of the city whose taps run dry or they might get water for couple of hours every few weeks and have to try and fill up their own tankers or they're forced to buy it for huge sums of money uh, just to have enough water to to drink and and to wash in and to do all the basic things you need so you have these kind of um basic aspects of infrastructure being controlled by by so-called mafias um, along with the the drugs trade and and the other things that you might expect so insofar as karachi vice has a turning point it's the Ashura bombing of 2009. Um, first of all, you know what what is this event? And then how does that change the violence in the city? So um, Ashura is a very holy day for Shia Muslims. Uh, it's the 10th day of Muharram, which is the month of mourning um, for Ali, who uh, was the, the sort of founder of Shia Islam. Uh, and they have a big um, parade on this day. Um, the, the thing that people, the image people might have seen is of people self-flagellating, which is something that 
that sometimes happens at Ashura parades. Um, and the Shia are a large minority in Pakistan. It makes They make up about a fifth of the population. Um, they're to some extent marginalized and have also been targeted by extremists who tend to be Sunni, uh, Sunni Muslims. And so this parade in 2009, or procession is maybe a better word uh, for it, was targeted um, <clears throat> by extremists. There was a huge, um, huge bomb attack. Um, and it was one of the biggest, um, it was the first kind of really big attack on the city itself. So as I mentioned, you'd had um, extremist groups like the Taliban um, using Karachi as a sort of fundraising base um, for for a, a few years running up to this event. But this was really one of the first times that you saw them turning their violent attention onto the city itself. And so it kind of marked a sea change in that way, um, because then after that, you had this period of, of sort of insanely frenetic levels of terrorist violence. I mean, you think about the response that we have in the West to, to acts of terror. And in Pakistan, there's a real, you know, at the time that I, I lived there for a year from 2012 to 2013, and, and by that time, there was a real kind of fatigue almost about it where, you know, you hear about a terror attack somewhere in the country every day or two probably in and it, it sort of becomes almost mundane. And if just a few people died, it's not really seen as that big a deal. And you had that happening constantly in Karachi, several times a week, sometimes um, every couple of days you had um, terror attacks of, of some sort. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it was one extra element to an already very febrile situation where, you you know, you had... Um, running street battles between different political organizations. Um, you had a really, really high level of kind of ambient violence at the time that these um, very frequent, very violent terror attacks sprung up. So, you know, I think it was also quite telling that for Zile, the crime reporter, terrorism was just sort of one more thing within his already enormous beat of covering crime. It just sort of was was folded into it and, and quickly became the focus. So as you noted in kind of your answer to an earlier question about the time period the book covers, um, the book ends with the Karachi operation where the army comes in and, you know, quote unquote, restores order. Um, you note on your return that most Karachi residents do enjoy the peace it brings. Um, the crackdown does bring an end to the violence, um, but also leads to a far greater presence of law enforcement and the military. Um, how do you think that people living in Karachi kind of saw that, I'm going to use the word trade-off. Um, do you think they kind of understood that there was a trade-off? And do you think that maybe they valued the security it brought, even if it meant you know, a greater military and law enforcement presence. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two answers to that. Um, one is that um, I think for much of the general population, yes, that's absolutely a trade-off, and it's um, one that people are quite happy with because fundamentally they can go about their daily business a lot more. I mean, the violence really was extreme to the extent that you know, from all walks of life, parents would worry whenever their kids were. Out, you know, including adult kids uh, out for the day uh, to work, worrying whether they'd come back or if they'd be caught in the crossfire somewhere. Um, so it was a, a huge level of of just sort of background 
stress to be living with this this high level of violence and not just violence but also um you know not just violence sorry in the in terms of these street gun battles and bomb attacks but also just really really out of control violent crime and kidnapping and shootings and so on um so i think that many people are extremely relieved to just be able to go about their lives without that level of worry to go to work and come back and not worry about whether their family members will be coming back from work that day and and to be able to go and enjoy uh, a meal out or a walk on the beach or just all the, all the kind of basic things that that make up the fabric of life or, or should do. Um, and then the second answer, I think, is that um, the as I cover in the book, the, the operation, although it's been effective to an extent, it also was quite indiscriminate in many ways. So there were large numbers of, of extrajudicial killings, um, uh, and you know I, I've spoken to police officers in Karachi about this who are quite open about it that they the justice system is creaking and failing and they feel they're going to get a much better result if they if they think they've identified a terrorist or a criminal to just shoot them rather than let them bribe their way out of prison or never uh, uh, never get to a proper court process and coordinate crimes from in jail or whatever those are all arguments I've heard made. Um, and you have a lot of people being caught up in the net. So one of the big criticisms of the operation is that the most senior members of um, criminal gangs and terror groups were able to flee overseas or elsewhere in the country and hide out somewhere, whereas you have the much more sort of lower-ranking foot soldiers being swept up. Um, And that includes people who, with any kind of tangential relationship, say to the MQM or to... uh, to a militant group or whatever, it might be people who, who you know, families say they they barely had any involvement at all and they uh, might be subject to extrajudicial killings. There's also been huge scale enforced disappearances, you know, people who are picked up for questioning and, and never seen again. So I think for the families of those people, um, the answer is very different. And, and also for not just for the people the families of people who have disappeared or, or been killed, but also the areas that were most targeted. So like Liari, uh, like Orangi Town, which is where Siraj, the mapmaker, lives. While many people are happy that there's a bit more order, other people who you know have had their houses raided or been subject to really frequent searches at checkpoints and so on because they're from these sort of so-called suspect areas. So I think that also colours the answer to it. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I think the vast majority of people are, um, you know, are relieved to be able to go about their lives, even even despite all those all those issues with the way it might have been enacted. Um, so I had a, I had a couple questions about about Karachi again, the city. Um, the first one is. Uh, you know, major cities kind of often get their own identity kind of distinct from the rest of the country, you know, different groups of people living and working together. This is true of Karachi, as there are people from um, all over Pakistan who are drawn to the city for the opportunities it brings. Um, so I guess kind of kind of in, in writing about Karachi, do you, did you see it as having its own kind of distinct identity separate from the rest of Pakistan and different from other Pakistani cities? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, as you say, people from cities often identify with that city very strongly. I think that's definitely true in Karachi. Um, 
you know, people from Karachi have a sort of joking rivalry with other cities. So it's, as I mentioned, it's the it's the sort of economic heart of the of the country, and it's the biggest, most cosmopolitan city. You've got the the biggest variety of ethnic groups and food and and so on. So it's got that kind of vibrancy and energy to it. Um, Lahore, which is one of the other big cities, is seen much more as the cultural center. But I think people in Karachi, while people in Lahore would might complain that Karachi is, uh, you know, too fast paced and dirty and dangerous, uh, people in Karachi would complain that, uh, you know, sort of joke about people in Lahore speaking really slowly and being really uh, uh, overly laid back and complacent i guess um there's also a joke. yeah as as, yeah. as 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 soon as as soon as you as you said rivalry i want to ask kind of which what city plays the mumbai to to uh karachi's delhi i guess yeah um, well i guess i mean i wonder if um karachi is more like a mumbai because mumbai yeah i was gonna say actually but... um yeah so you know lahore i remember when i was going to lahore for the first time my relatives in karachi kept warning me yo you're gonna be so bored it's so boring there. Um, of course, I wasn't. It's an absolutely beautiful city with tons to see and do, but uh, it's definitely a, a slightly slower pace, and it's also more ethnically homogenous as well. You don't have the same kind of migration. Um, Islamabad, the other um, big city, which is the capital, barely even features in that rivalry because uh, the common joke outside Islamabad is, is Islamabad is is um, fifty kilometers from Pakistan because it's so. Um, different it's very it's a planned city it's very orderly it's very sleepy sort of mountain town so it's not seen as being um uh in the same league at all uh so i think yeah there's that strong sense of identity in karachi that it's it's kind of scrappy and resilient and um vibrant and people have a real pride in it um and it's it really i think energy is a very vague term but it really is very very kind of energetic and fast in a way that I find very appealing and there's a huge humor as well you know something else that I I find very appealing it's for people uh it's a city really full of storytellers and stories uh and people have a real sense of dark humor even about the most difficult aspects of of life in the city and I think that's one of the things that makes it so compelling um even though in many ways it's a difficult place to live so you also have a personal connection to the city. Um, I believe it's your it's your mother's home city, unless I'm mistaken. Um, so as someone with ties to Karachi, what was it like to write about that city compared to other cities you may have written about in the well in in the past? Yeah, so I do have a personal connection, as you say. It's my mother's hometown. She lived there till she was in her twenties. And that's when my mother and her parents and siblings moved to the UK. Um, But I've got lots of relatives still there. Um, When I first went freelance in 2012, uh, I lived in Pakistan for a year, first with relatives in in Karachi, then in Islamabad for a bit. And I've been going back ever since. So I've I've spent a lot of time there. um, And I have, as you say, this this personal connection. Um, I think it makes it... uh, easier and harder to write about in a way because um, uh, I guess uh, as anyone uh, with a kind of diaspora background would relate to, I'm sure you're sort of part insider and part outsider. Um, And that can be complicated. That can also be useful. Um, I think I've probably 
I mean, I've definitely spent more time in Karachi than than any other city apart from London where I grew up and where I live. Um, and so I, I feel I have a lot more knowledge about it and than I do about other places I visited. Um, and so I could, you know, just, just have a little bit more confidence writing about the city because I've spent a lot of time there and I've, I've been to a lot of different places and, and so on. Um, but in a way, I wonder if it's also, I mean, maybe I'd really struggle to write about London in the same way because I'm almost too close to it. I guess I've grown up here and um, spent my whole life here. Whereas in, in Karachi, although I have spent a lot of time there, um, you're kind of, I didn't grow up there and I'm coming at it with, with a sort of outsider's eyes to some extent too, which I think was helpful in the end. Um, and yeah, I was very aware of the fact that although I have spent a lot of time in, in Karachi and, and care deeply about it as a place, I I didn't grow up there and I didn't want people from the city to sort of read it and not recognise the city. Um, so I, I had that sort of internal critic in my mind, I guess. Um, but one thing that's been really nice, actually, is that lots of people... Uh, readers from Karachi have been in touch to say how much they enjoyed sort of learning about bits of the city they hadn't been to because you know you you, as you do in many cities you sort of end up quite geographically constrained you stay in the area it's so big you stay in the area where you live and work and where your friends and family live and work and you don't really necessarily go further afield and certainly not to the to the maybe more um, or historically more dangerous um, areas that I was writing about. So yeah, I hope, hope it's kind of shed new light in that way um, for people who maybe hadn't um, had cause to, to venture out of where they were. But yeah, I definitely, I definitely thought about um, how I was representing the city and, and what kind of, um, you know, how it would read to people who were from the city or, or know it better than I do. So with that, Thank you for listening to our interview with Samir Shackle, author of Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City. Samira, I actually have one final question. Uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, people can find my work online. Uh, I tend to tweet most things I do. Uh, it's just um, at Samira Shackle. I've got a website, which is samirashackle.com, where I, I post links sometimes. Um, yeah, at the moment, I am not working on another book, although this book is coming out in the US in the autumn. So I'm just sort of doing some prep for that. Um, you mentioned at the top, I, I write regularly for The Guardian's long read section. So I'm doing a few pieces for them at the moment. Um um, my most recent one came out last month, which was about uh, COVID conspiracy theories in the UK. Uh, so a pretty different subject matter to the book. Um, and yeah, working on a few stories for them. Obviously, travel hasn't been the most easy this year. So I haven't been to Pakistan since, um, I guess it was over a year ago now. It was March 2020 that I last went. Um, so yeah, I've been sort of turning my attention to, to some UK focused stories and, and working on some long form reporting. Um, and yeah, maybe another book at some point soon, but not yet. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. 
You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you continue listening to the Asian Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Professor Bernadette, uh, Bernadette Gonzalez, author of Empire's Mistress, starring Isabel Rosario Cooper. But before then, thank you so much, Samira, for joining me today. Thanks for having me.